Hello? Hello? Is this on? Yeah? Okay, I can't tell. Ooh. Hey, everybody. My name is Jacob Daniel, if you don't know who I am. I'm the really loud one in this church. Um, uh, 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 Brian, like, um, like Scott said, Brian is teaching to, I mean, he taught last year at this youth event, and I think they had a few churches show up, and now he gets to be the keynote speaker again for it, and it's like 10 to 15 churches come together, so he's like talking to like, like hundreds of students right now, so it's a really great opportunity for him. But what that means is that you're slumming it with me today, all right, uh, stepping on in for Brian, but um, uh, I'm really excited about the text. We have a lot to go through. We're going through 11 verses together. He gave us a big section to work through. I know, it's going it's to be, uh, it's it's be a lot to work through, but I mean, as I was studying through it, and it's, I think it's going to be helpful because I believe this passage specifically talks about us enduring in the ministry that God has given us. We all have a ministry that God has given us. We're Christians, and we all have to, we all have, to um, we have this role of sharing the gospel in different contexts of where we're at. And so this passage is going to address how do we endure in the midst of that. So just before we get into the text, I'm going to do a light recap of what we can, uh, where Brian was bringing us up to this point. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Brian covered verses 1 through 6 last week. And at a high level, he, the title of the sermon was Overcoming the God of This World. And really, it was talking about the ministry that God has given us, all right? God has given us a ministry, and the Bible uses words like light, which is the gospel, and it uses words like darkness. And darkness is the sinful state of this world, and so the world needs the gospel. And Brian walked us through about how the gospel uh, is redeeming this world slowly. This is God's plan, that we would share the gospel in the midst of this light. However, Paul makes a clear distinction about how he shares the gospel. Uh, you might have, do you guys remember Brian's story about some of the, uh, the seminary tactics that, they, that he learned about how to do an altar call? Do you remember that? So there's like a seminary class on how to do an altar call, and there's like an art to it. There's a science to getting people to respond, apparently. And uh, not that altar calls are bad. I mean, I've known several people who have come to faith through coming up front, and those are some great steps for them. So there are some beautiful things in it, but... There's this, and this is part of our Western, Western culture a little bit, there's a part of us that sometimes likes to, um, to show that the gospel is effective, so we want to, I guess, dictate results. Sometimes we can, we want to sometimes manipulate things. And so because, I mean, and I think some of it comes from a good intention, we want to say, man, we had 100 people come to know faith, come to know Jesus. We've had so many baptisms, like we love to measure things here. Forgetting that God is the one that produces results. Like, he is the one that gives results. Our job is just to share. We are the mouthpiece. And so you can get on a slippery slope in ministry of doing things to dictate results. And it's not actual life change. It's not the power of the gospel. It's our power of persuasion. And so what we see here in verse 4, 1, um, Paul says, uh, no, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. He says, we refuse to practice cunning. He says, what we want to do is, is we just want to share the gospel. And that's one thing I love about Church at the Square, is we keep the truth first. And we're not trying to dictate people. We're, just let, we're, we're sharing God's truth about the gospel, and we're wa watching that change people's lives. Um, so that's where, so 
Brian was talking about the gospel and the power to save us, all right? The, uh, and then we're going to go now into a little bit more about how do we endure in that ministry. How do we endure the ministry that God has given us? Because he's given us a ministry to be a part of, all right? If you're a Christian, you're on mission. I don't know if you know that or not. Congratulations. You're on mission, all right? Um, and so we're going to pick up in verse 7. I'm going to go ahead, just so you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole. We have 11 verses to work through, okay? And I'm going to try to work them as quick as possible. But uh, I'm going to read through it, and we're just going to start back at the top. So if you could open up your Bibles, I think, yep, we have it up here on the screen. We're going to go all the way through it, okay? So starting in verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I, according to what is written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will ra- uh, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with him into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul opens up and he says, we have this treasure. All right, now treasure is is a metaphor. It's used common throughout the New Testament. If you've been in a church long enough, you hear the word treasure. And it's the word is thesaurus, it is deposit. You know, when you get deposit into your account, what do you do? You get excited because you have value. You got some money, right? Same concept here. It is a value. And the word treasure is used several times to kind of show, like, what are we caring about? What do we value? Matthew 6, where your treasure is, where your heart is. Jesus says this, okay? So for this specific context, though, he's not talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking specifically about the gospel. And that's where Brian took up a point. The treasure is the gospel. However, we have sometimes the tendencies to devalue this treasure. Have you guys ever heard of, um, he's, he's an old pastor, I say old, he's 1800s. His name's J.C. Ryle. He does a lot of, he had, a, he had a lot of great works, and he wrote that we have these ways to spoil the gospel. And we can spoil it by several different ways, because what do we know about the gospel? Romans 1.16 is the power to save, is the power to save us. But what we can do is, is we can devalue this treasure and spoil it. And he lists a long list, and I can send you the long list later. I'm not going to go over the long list. But there's two of them that I thought were pretty prevalent in our day, is that one, we add to the gospel. We'll say gospel and what you do. It's actually written in some of the uh, Catholicism documents. They'll say um, faith and works. And sometimes in a church, you might not say it. And Brian does a great job at teaching that that we are saved through grace alone. But sometimes in practice, we rely heavily on our works and not the work that Christ has done. So we can devalue the gospel, we can, by adding to it. And then J.C. Ross is another way that we can devalue the gospel is that we can substitute things for the gospel. Um, this term is, Ryan, Ryan dropped this a couple, I want to say two to three weeks ago. Have you all ever heard of the term called plural, pluralism? 
Have you heard of that? Maybe, maybe not. It's, it's just a term that says all religions are equal. And, that, and that's kind of what society wants us to do. They want us to say, you know, it's all, isn't it all the same? We're all kind of worshiping the same God. We're all trying to get to the same conclusion. And the big problem with that is that Jesus says, I am the way. He doesn't say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a, he doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. All right? And that's very important for us because that's, we see that a lot of times um, in our own practices. Because, I, like for example, me and my wife were walking down the street, and we engaged in a conversation with, uh, with our neighbor. And he's deist. And deist just simply means that, hey, I believe in a higher power. I believe that there is some type of God. Um, I don't know who this God is, but I believe in him. And he, he lives by this pluralism. Well, you believe in a higher power. I believe in higher power. And that's, that's, not going to, that's not going to save him at the end, the fact that he believes that there could be something. All right? Acts 4.12, Peter says, And there is, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, church, the important thing for us to realize is, is that, one, we cannot devalue this treasure, and we must put this as the highest priority in how we approach everyone's life. And that is, so we have this treasure in the gospel, but it's... Uh, but the irony of this is, and uh, I love that Scott chose the song that actually mentioned jars of clay. And if, actually, if you have your bulletin, look at this picture here up front. It's, um, uh, these, this is the jars of clay that they'd be referencing. God, uh, Paul says, we have this treasure in a jar of clay. doesn't really seem like the best strategy to store treasure, right? Like, if you have this strategy, like this, this doesn't make any sense. Because what do we know about jars of clay? They break. They're weak. You could actually find this. Uh, I heard some pastor teach like you could find tons of broken pieces if you were to go out to the Middle East. It's just very common. All right? They break. It doesn't sound like the, this almost seems like a bad strategy. We would want to put it in like a safe or something like that. Um, but this, this is another metaphor, and it's pretty common. So Paul uses two popular metaphors, treasure and jars of clay. Clay, um, uh, we are several times referenced as cray, cray, or cray, um, uh, as clay, in the, in the Bible, like uh, Jeremiah, uh, so you go back to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, walks up, um, Jeremiah walks up on this potter's house. And I don't know how potters do pottery. I'm assuming they're, they're working the wheel, or they have this wheel down here, and they're working it. And this potter is working the clay. And God brings Jeremiah over to look at this potter. And this is what he says in verse 6. So this is Jeremiah 18 through 19. This is what he says in 18.6. He says, can I, O house of Israel, deal with you as that potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are my hand. So there's several, and there's several examples that we'll see that God will reference us as clay. That's what we are. We are created vessels. He can mold us and shape us however he wants to do. He's God. He can do it. You see it in Romans 9. You see it in Isaiah 64. God is creator. And and so it comes down to this idea of why, God, why is this your strategy? Why would you put such a valuable treasure in such a weak vessel? It doesn't make sense to us. But the passage finishes, and if you could, could look, turn your eyes to the passage, verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we can't boast about this. Uh, this is uh, actually flip to 2 Corinthians 12.9. If you 
Uh, Brian's going to cover this passage later. But listen to what Paul says. He's going to reiterate this because this is really important. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, and he's referring to what Jesus said to him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, I'm strong. This is a common theme that God uses weakness to show his power. We see it in the Old Testament. Does anybody remember the story of Gideon? Gideon had 32,000 men. And God said, hey, Gideon, I want you to fight the Midianites. All right? And so Gideon's like, all right, I guess we're going to fight. This is what God wants me to do. I'll get all my people together. Now, he did have some doubting in the beginning, but we're going to move past that. Um, in Judges 6 through 8, but in, uh, but in verse 7, um, no, in chapter 7, 2 in Judges, God looks at Gideon's army of 32,000, and this is what he says to him, okay? He says, the people with you are too many. You have too many people. The army's way too big to give to the Midianites, for me to give you the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my hand has saved me. So what does God do? He's like, hey man, if you send you to war like this, you're going to be proud. So I want you to do the first thing I want you to do is I want you to say, if anybody's scared, go home. So what happened? 22,000 people are like, I'm leaving. All right, so now we have 10,000. And God's like, too much, too much. Can't have that. You're going to be too proud. So I want you to go on down this river, and the ones that are drinking on all fours, lapping like a dog, those are the ones I want you to choose. Can you imagine if you're Gideon sitting there thinking, it's like, so I had 32,000, and now I have 3,000, the ones that are lapping water. You know, they probably didn't even know to be afraid because they don't even know how to drink water properly out of a river. It's like, this is the group that you have chosen me to... All right, if that's your strategy, God, let's do it. Let's go. But what happened? It takes 300 people. He breaks them up into three. They circle the Midian army, and they bang on. They start making music. Actually, they bang on these jars, and the Midianites turn on each other. And what can you say when they start killing each other? You're like, oh, I can't, tell you, I can't boast in this, right? I can't. Okay, same thing happens in the New Testament. All right, you have these fishermen and Peter. All right, they're not educated. I think sometimes when, when, like when, I, when I see that God saved Paul, he saved a really brilliant man. And I'm like, man, he saved this really brilliant man, and now he argues for the gospel so well. Yeah, I get that. That salvation made sense to me. I see what he's doing on paper there. But when you think about what God did for, um, you think what God did with Peter, he's like, he saves Peter, a fisherman. All right, and, and in Acts 2, Peter, man, all he does is just followed what Jesus was doing. In Acts 2, Peter heals a lame beggar. It's something that he's seen Jesus do outside of a synagogue. He heals this lame beggar, and they pull him up because everybody's like, oh, my goodness, this guy's healed. What's going on? Like, we've seen him. He could not walk. You have healed him, all right? And Peter's like, well, all I did was do what I saw Jesus do, and Jesus is the guy that you killed. This is not something I did. I'm not special. Jesus is the one that provided the ability to heal this person. And so that's all he does. And I love, I, this, is, um, uh, this makes me feel a little bit better about not doing seminary or anything in life. Uh, not that you shouldn't do seminary. But this is what they say in chapter 4, 13 of Acts. Now when the Sadducees, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, 
they were astonished because they recognized that they had been with Jesus. All right? So no formal training, just doing what Jesus says, and Jesus gets the glory. They're, they're not saying, wow, that was a really good thing, Peter, man, you're really smart. They're like, wow, this is a really great God. All right? Common theme throughout Scripture is that God sets up scenarios so that he gets the glory and so that we can't boast. It produces humility. Humility is a key trait in Christianity. You can't, you can't be prideful and say, I'm a Christian. You can't say, well, you know, I'm a jar. Yeah, yeah, pretty good, pretty good jar. You can't do that, all right, because we are broken. And the beautiful thing about, if you think about the analogy, that, and we're, we're going to get into suffering in a little bit, but as the jar breaks, what do people see? The treasure. That's the point. All right, so um, uh, to fill out, oh, guys, I skipped my first point to give you. I know, failure on my part. All right, so your first point was God shows his power through our weakness. All right, so power, weakness. Point number two, all right, so you can put this down. God's grace sustains us in our suffering. All right, Uh, we see this in verse 8, so we're going to go ahead and pick up in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that, so, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul's ministry is just, if you look at it, it has this liturgy, this rhythm of, I go to a synagogue, I preach, or I go to a town, and I preach, and I suffer some kind of persecution. Not everybody's always receptive. And he uses this language of crucifixion, resurrection, all right? And that is one of those things that is how we relate to Christ. We suffer with Christ, but then we are raised with Christ. We see the same fruit in Paul's ministry. He'll go into a town, and he'll suffer in it. He'll labor in the gospel, and then God will save some. He'll go suffer, and God will save some. And so it's a rhythm throughout It's a rhythm throughout Paul's life, and suffering is to be expected. But the beautiful thing is, what do we see in the passage? God is sustaining him. These sufferings, it's not the end of Paul. He says, I'm afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. God is sustaining him through these things. One of my favorite verses that I memorized early on is Philippians 1.6. And it's for he who, Paul, Paul says, For he who began a good work will carry it to completion to the day of Lord Jesus. We are banking on God to complete the work that he started. All right? This is not something special that we are manifesting himself. Paul's, as he's looking through his persecutions, he's not saying, man, I'm great. He's saying, I'm weak, and we are seeing God's power in my weakness. So regardless of what suffering that you go on, because we do suffer as Christians in some capacities. I know we look at Paul's life and we're like, well, Paul was persecuted, and that's suffering, and that's the definition of suffering. But really, guys, just from the fallen state of our world, we suffer in a wide variety, just from, the, just from sin alone. Um, uh, I read this book. I don't know if you guys are Kevin DeYoung fans. He writes, he's, a, he's, a great, he's a great author. Um, but a key... A key, he had this chapter in this book, the book was about busyness, but essentially he titled this chapter, he says, to serve is to suffer. At any point that we are giving of ourselves, as we go to serve, and we do this in the context of church, right? 
Some of you show up every Sunday and serve the church. And it's hard. in the beginning, you're like, yes, I'm signing up. I'm, I'm going to serve. I'm going to help. I'm going to serve the body of Christ. And long term, it's hard. As you serve continuously, there is a suffering element to this. And this is, I, I, I want to, I suffering is good from a scripture standpoint. There's actually, a, a lot of people argue that the West has this mentality, a prosperity theology. Now, Brian won't let us have a prosperity theology. We know that. He will not. However, some, some, I think sometimes we can think one, even though we wouldn't teach one. We can wake up thinking that my day should go perfect, and if suffering happens, what's going on, God? Right? We get frustrated. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And so, and so a lot of times we, even though we would not teach a prosperity theology, when suffering enters our lives, we want to vacate and make that stop. I do it a lot of times in my job. Uh, I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm an auditor at a bank, guys. That's not entertaining work. Um, uh, but it's important to know that God will sustain us. And I want to go back to the Philippians 1.6, is that when we lean into the suffering, God is holding on to us, and he, he is carrying us through this. He even carries us through our sin. Like, even as we continue to sin, God is carrying us. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a pastor called R.C. Sprouls. He passed maybe a year ago. But he has this, uh, he has this saying, that, and I'm, I'm going to read it word for word. And I think this, this brought me a lot of, uh, I want to listen to R.C. Sprouls. He's an amazing teacher brought me just, I guess, a lot of confidence in God's complete work. I'm going to read it to you. It says, R.C. Sproul says, true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. We could sin so bad, but if we are truly God's, we have not fallen from his grace, and he's sustaining us. And so that's, I, I think that's a beautiful comfort in the midst of our sufferings. So we're going to move on to verse, uh, verse 13. Paul then says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I speak. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul quotes Psalm 116. This is the I love you, Lord, Psalm. It's from David. David had a long, we're not going to get into all of David's sufferings that he endured in his life. But the, the point of this text is, is that in verse 13, we share in this faith, so we share in sufferings, all right, and we speak. We continue to share the faith. Another, another part is in the, in, the, in the context of community groups, in the context of this church, we bear each other's burdens. That's one thing that we do. Next, in verse 14, but in the midst of these things, as we're sharing the gospel and we're comforting each other in the community of sharing the gospel, we have this confidence that Jesus will. If we look at verse 14, it says, um, knowing that he who raised the Lord will raise us with Jesus. So our confidence is what Christ is going to do for us at the end, is that we will be with him at the end. And then verse 15, um, uh, as we share this, well, this goes back to God gives the results, right? It, it says that... Uh, as grace extends to more and more, it may increase in thanksgiving that as we share the gospel and God saves people, people turn around and then thank him for, this, for um, and this glorifies him. So we're going to transition over to 16 because I feel like this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time camping out here. I know I've probably already taken too much of you guys' time, but this, I really want us, this is going to be, um, 
This is where I can almost use Brian's mind a little bit because uh, this text, um, it can be a little, I don't want to say it's a little technical, but it can be a little technical to understand because we're going to try to define God's glory in a second. That's a very, it's a very difficult thing to do, okay? Uh, but before we get into it, let's read verse 16. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. He actually opens up chapter 4 like that. He says, therefore we have in this ministry of the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He says it twice. Why do you think he says, we do not lose heart? Because we could lose heart. We're jars. We're weak. When suffering happens, we have the tendency to lose heart. All right? But he's going to give us the secret. I say it's a secret. It's laid out plainly. But he's going to give us a clue of how to not lose heart. Because he tells us, you have the tendency to lose heart. This is how you don't lose heart. The passage continues. Though, though, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God created us to need him daily. All right? We're not in our state with him where we don't, we're, 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 we're perfected, we're glorified, we're with him. We need him daily. All right? Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, he says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Each day has trouble. That's it. That's a fact. Tomorrow we'll have trouble. The next day we'll have trouble. We will have trouble, all right? However, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have daily troubles, but God has daily mercy for us, all right? So that's why we are to daily, what's he say? Renew. In Romans, 18, uh, Romans 8, he says that we are to renew our minds, all right? So that is spending time with God daily, worshiping God, being in the context of the church. We are, we are supposed to renew ourselves daily because God created us as weak vessels to need him daily. All right, so third point, third final point. All right, guys, stay with me. Here it is. Our suffering prepares us for a future glory. Paul says for our light and momentary affliction. Paul says the afflictions are light. That sounds kind of silly, because do you guys remember in Lystra what happened to Paul? The dude was literally stoned. He was drug out in the middle, and they are like, oh, I think he's dead. See, guys, they left him. He says that's light. That doesn't sound light. All right? it's, 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 the abuse that Paul took in his life, for him to say that his afflictions are light, it just doesn't make sense to us. But he says it's light for two reasons. First, it's a momentary affliction. We've got to realize that anything in this life is momentary. Uh, one, one, a pastor that I really like named uh, David Platt, he gives this analogy. He says that there's this general who, back in the Civil War day, uh, he fought for the Confederate side, and he saw that the tides were shifting. He saw that the Union was about to win, and he had Confederate currency. And he's like, well, if we're about to lose, uh, this is not going to be worth anything. Period. So what's he do? He slowly, until as, as the North is going to win and it's going to establish the new America, he 
starts exchanging his currency for the future. He starts getting that, he starts getting that union dollar or whatever currency they were using then. And that's the analogy that we have here. We trade in our current sufferings, we trade in our current gifts, we trade in our current finances and, and the anticipation of what is to come. All right, it's momentary, the time that we have. And then number two, so reasons we, the reason our afflictions are light is because one, they're momentary, and two, there will be a glory beyond all comparisons. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul actually goes to Corinth and writes Romans, and he uses this exact same language here, Romans 8.18. And I realize in order for us to say, okay, well, how can we be comforted by future glory? We have to understand glory. And this is why I said it's going to be hard to divine, because I've literally, any pastor that I've respected, if I've read an article on them, essentially they'll say, well, God's glory is kind of impossible to define. And so what are we going to do with it? How, how, we see glory a lot throughout Scripture. So what do we do if it's really impossible to find? The best, uh, the best breakdown, the reason it's hard is because it's abstract. So think about it. It's like defining beauty. How do you tell somebody something is beautiful? How do you do that? You point at something. You give them reference points, right? It's not like a basketball. I would say, oh, well, it's round, you bounce it, and I try to shoot it. Okay, that, that's what a basketball is. Beauty is different. You have to look at it. And that builds your framework for what beauty is. Okay, so we're going to try to build a framework for glory real quick. Okay? In Isaiah 6, 3, finish, tell me if you can finish this verse with me. Uh, Isaiah is standing. He has this vision. He's in front of the seraphim and the Lord, and he's seeing, the, uh, he's seeing God. And the seraphim say in 6, 3, uh, if you've been in church long enough, maybe you've heard this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with your glory, okay? The earth is filled with your glory. It doesn't say the earth is filled with your holiness. The earth is filled with your glory. And this is why it's a little bit technical. God's glory is a manifestation of his holiness. What holiness is, is God being set apart. He's different than us. He is sinless, all right? So we are getting a glimpse when we look at his glory. And the Bible tells us where we can see some of his glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare your glory. Now this is talking about creation heavens. The heavens declare your glory, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. That's why in Romans 1, God's, uh, Paul says God makes himself evident through creation. We can see God's glory in all places, and it's a reflection of his holiness. All right? So the surpassing glory that we're going to see, we're only catching glimpses of it right now. You ever been like on a big hiking expedition or, or uh, you ever been to like a really tall mountain? Like everybody, anybody like climbed like a big mountain or like seen something? Like me and my wife, went to, we went to Yosemite about a year and a half ago and you're just like, I can't believe that thunder or this. Okay, I was like, am I muffling it right now? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I was like, what? How did, how did that end up happening? All right, so anyway, um, uh, um, all right, guys, maybe pretty well was. All right, um, uh, Yosemite, yes, yes. So we're in Yosemite, and we're just like you drive into the park and you see God's creation, and you're just like, wow, who can create these things? Who can? Him. And it shows his glory. And Paul's saying, what you're going through right now. It surpasses on the other side. 
you can, you can look at these reference points, but it's not even close. And we're blown away just by creation, period. So that's why Paul says, he finishes out the text saying, we look to the things that are not, we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things unseen. And that is the glory to come. And that is how we deal with affliction. So guys, just to kind of recap where we're at, um, uh, God shows his power through our weakness. He sustains us in our suffering. Our suffering prepares us for our future glory. And what we have to do is to renew ourselves daily. We need him daily. Uh, I'm going to leave with this final verse. Um, this, is, this is something that I, 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 I've tried to commit this verse to memory, but it's helpful um, in, folk, in, in renewing your mind. Paul says, Philippians 4.8. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace be with you.